Good morning. How we doing? We're glad you're here with us today. I see quite a few people in this room. Praise God. I just was uh, happy to see all those little people run out of this room for a children's Bible hour. I, I'm happy not because like I want all the I don't want the noise and distraction. I'm happy because there's so many and uh, praise God for that. Uh, they bring a lot of life and energy, and uh, I survived my little treasure thing last week, so for you who are here with me and those little people, praise God for that. Uh, if you're joining us in the parking lot or you're joining us here in uh, the building, we're just glad to have you. And we're continuing. We've been smelling the roses talking about uh, the kingdom of God and the implications of Jesus' teaching, what he was announcing, its availability to us even now. So last week we talked some about the costs of committing to live in the kingdom of God, and we talked about costs associated with ignoring it, just saying, you know, Lord, thanks, but no thanks. This is not for me. I don't want this. And then we talk some about the benefits and promises that, that the scriptures themselves give about uh, what is available to us and even now what is made available to us in God's kingdom. And so uh, we already get to experience some of the first fruits of the kingdom of God. And there's an insert, there should be in the bulletin this week. Some of you asked me for that because I went through it so quickly this last week. Take this, meditate on it, think about these things, um, consider these promises. Because I think the fruit that comes from thinking about the promises of the kingdom of God, it's worthwhile. And uh, this is not an exhaustive list. You could build this list three or four times over very easily, uh, just looking through the scriptures. So feel free to add to it or take away. well, maybe not take away. But <laughs> uh, go ahead and spend some time looking through that if you would. Just take that pi- uh, paper, put it in the Bible. I'm sorry the font is so small. I was told that it's very hard to read, maybe for older eyes. Uh, and I just want you to all know that that's not my fault. It's Denise Foreman's fault. <laughs> just kidding. It's my fault, Denise. Because really, really, when you think about the promises of, of, of Christ, and you think about already the, the fruit of that and the goodness of it, uh, when we realize what God offers us and when we realize what God desires for us, and uh, it is, in fact, the greatest deal, the greatest bargain offered to a human being in any culture, of any time, of any place. And uh, we have those moments when we realize and we stumble across just the goodness of our Lord, and we realize the ways that somehow this is like a treasure hidden in a field that I may have missed. I didn't even know it was so valuable. And when we realize inevitably what we've got, it leads certain places. And one of those places it leads to is repentance. And so this is where the sermon's coming from today. We need to talk about uh, the way that Jesus taught. 
Because if we're not up to speed and understanding the way Jesus went about teaching, uh, we miss a lot of the value of it sometimes because it's a very different model than like our Western model of uh, education where we just are given certain things that we're supposed to learn. We're not supposed to be creative with it. We're just, it's just information dumped in that we are supposed to regurgitate. And if you regurgitate that information correctly and well, you get a high marking grade in that. And so because we're part of our, our epistemology, it's part of a judgment system. But Jesus didn't teach that way of just telling the way it is. He does but he does it in a way that uh, it, it requires certain things of us. It requires us to chew on the information that he's given, to think about it, to question our assumptions. And so we're going to talk some about Jesus' teaching, specifically parables, and then we're going to talk some about repentance. Repentance is where inevitably, if you understand the treasure of what has been given to you, it will lead us to a place of repentance. And we don't typically like ideas associated with repentance because really we don't understand what a gift repentance is. A lot of people come to church to get a boost, to hear an encouraging word, to have some uplifting thoughts about pleasant things, maybe to find some moral instruction, uh, maybe we're kind of in a place where, yeah, it's okay, but I think it's probably good for the kids. You know, I, and I don't want to knock that because these are all good things. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with appreciating the benefits of something positive in your life or a positive word that is encouraging. But we're not told that these things are supposed to be first. Instead, we are told, seek first the kingdom of God. And that means whether or not I'm feeling it, whether or not I think it's good for the kids, whether or not I think it's a positive message or not, there's something more important going on here that requires my interaction and allegiance. And I, inevitably, we find the ways when we are confronted with the Word of God, and it gets in our hearts, inevitably we are confronted with all of the ways that we've gotten off track and we've gone off course. And typically we want to pretend, oh, there's nothing wrong. I've got this. It's okay. Uh, I don't want to come up here. This is it's embarrassing. It's shameful. I... Here's what I don't want for the Eugene Church of Christ. I don't want anyone here feeling like they've got to fake it. I don't want you feeling like you've got to fake anything. It's okay to not believe things. It's okay to be wrestling with things. It's okay to not be okay. Because when we're under this system and this feeling of, I've got to pretend to be a certain way, you know, it's just exhausting for me when people ask, how are you doing? And I'm supposed to say I'm okay, but you know, I'm heartbroken, or this or that is going on. When we can't be honest with each other in this place about how we're doing, that is a huge problem. So there are certain things that repentance calls us to, certain realizations that we are, are, are invited to make and discover. 
So basically, people kind of, this is the realization that you need to not come to. You're not basically a good person who just needs a little extra Jesus sprinkled on top. Like a little spice added. A little something extra special in this project of my life. A little tack on. A little addition. That realization... You, are, I'm, you guys are great people, by the way. And uh, uh, everyone has a greatness about them as being created in the image of God. And that image, even when we hide from it, even when we cover it over with sin, even when we're distracted, there's something about the glory of God in, in all of humanity. And our task as disciples of Jesus is to speak life to that and call that identity forth. The realization that we need, though, is not that Calvin's a pretty good guy and give me a little extra, Jesus. I just need that extra boost. The realization that Calvin needs to come to is to realize that I'm a terrorist and I have taken up arms in rebellion against my true king. When I come to that place, it produces a whole different kind of fruit. And I'm not saying that realization is comfortable or easy or fun. It's not. The realization that I need to come to, probably what would help me the most is to begin to understand all the places where I have traded treasure for pig slop. A realization that I need is to realize where I have traded my precious inheritance for a bowl of lentil soup. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is about realizing what is true, realizing what has true value, realizing the treasure that maybe has been hidden right in front of my face that I have not noticed. And I just trip on it and discover it. Repentance is about waking up and correcting the course of wherever we are. So some more thoughts about repentance. I'm, I'm, I'm spelling this out a little bit because I think it's good to think about repentance. But uh, typically in the church, the way I kind of grew up with this and what was pushed forward uh, in my understanding is it's a shameful thing, and it's an ugly thing, and it's just, who would ever want to do that? And so I would rather fake it than I'm okay than ever open myself to the, wonder what happened, wonder what so-and-so did. And so we hide from repentance, we hide from sharing the depths of our struggle, the grossness of our own hearts at times. Try to cover that over. Who would want repentance? Who would want that? And so many people have been thought, uh, taught to think about repentance is you're supposed to be feeling real bad about something you've done first, and second, you need to make some kind of promise that you're not going to do that again. Now, I don't have a problem with that because that is included in what repentance is about, but that's not all repentance is about. Repentance is about waking up to what is really valuable, waking up to my own need, waking up to the fact that I am steering the ship off course. 
and there's a correction that needs to be made. And when you love the Lord enough, you will repent. When your heart is right, it won't be satisfied with faking anything for anyone. When the kingdom of God comes in power, when the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, you don't have to fake anything anymore. And when you need to change course, you have the strength and power you need to change course. So repentance is not the burden that we've made it out to be. It is, in fact, a tremendous gift that we're given, an opportunity to seek hard after the Lord your God and to align yourself again and again and again with His desires and His purposes to enjoy the fruit that that produces and to become a blessing for the people around you. So biblical repentance, I would say, it's about waking up. Nautically speaking, is that a word, nautically, like uh, maritimes, maritimally speaking? <laughs> repentance is about realizing, hey, this ship has gone off course, and we need to turn and correct that course again. And I don't have to pretend that I'm not off course and steer the ship into the rocks until the ship is going down and it's taking on water. Repentance doesn't have to wait until that point when it's become so bad I just can't hide it anymore. Repentance can take place all the time in little ways, little words to my wife, I'm sorry. Little ways I realize, you know what, these distractions have come and I need to correct this. Spent too much time ignoring my daughter. I spent too much time in this fruitful thing uh, or fruitless thing, whatever that thing is. We all have our things that, that we fill in that spot. See, repentance is about realizing that sin isn't real good if I can just get away with it. If no one catches me and I can do this, I can have it all. That's not repentance. Repentance is realizing sin is dumb. It's harming me. It's harming others. Repentance is not faking it anymore. Repentance is realizing that Jesus is, in fact, my treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if that treasure is Jesus Christ... Praise be to God, because you are living a life that glorifies Him. See, I think, this is what I think. I think you don't, I, I'm glad we have rules in Scripture. I'm glad they're there. But you do not defeat sin with a list of rules. You defeat sin with a heart transplant. You defeat sin by having the heart of a son or the heart of a daughter. It just wants to please 
her dad no matter what. Because when the heart is right, right actions will follow. That's Jesus' teaching. That's why repentance is a gift and why it's so important. Because if I have the heart of the Son, I am not thinking, what can I get away with when no one's looking? I realize instead I have traded pig slop for treasure and I realign the ship to get back on course. And this is what Jesus is talking about in Mark and other places when he says, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That word repentance means your life strategy, think about it again. Think, out, think it out again in light of this new possibility, which wasn't always a possibility, but in Jesus Christ it becomes a possibility. Life together with God in his kingdom. Think it out again. How am I living in this kingdom? How am I living by its power? How am I living by its resources? Where am I in rebellion against this kingdom? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the greatest treasure, the greatest opportunity for anyone. And consequently, that is what we announce in the church. I believe that my role as a minister is not to, uh, is not to market my, whatever, <laughs> my own smarts. I'm not to minister my own smarts. I'm not to minister my own good looks, uh, great though they may be. I'm not ministering these things. What we minister is the possibility of life together with God in His kingdom. That's the treasure. The treasure is getting to live in that power of the kingdom, getting to model that for one another. And I don't have to fake it. I don't have to hide anything. I have power, all the power I need to deal with things like temptation, to deal with the difficult situations that just cause so many people to just be adrift in this world. Repentance is a great gift. And Jesus constantly taught about this kingdom and what this kingdom is like. And the way the, Jesus teaches the way he teaches in order to help grow our faith. And as our faith grows, we trust that God sees me. God knows what I'm going through. God is able to handle whatever my circumstances are. I trust that God will take care of me. That's living in the kingdom of God. That's life in the kingdom. So Jesus gives us teachings that invite us from a state of unbelief to a state of faith. And uh, he's not just giving us a set of slogans to crochet on pillows. Uh, not that I have a problem with any of that either. I think that's great. Uh, but he's really, his teaching is telling us what your life is going to be like when you begin to step into the kingdom of heaven. 
So here's some things I want us to remind us about. I've talked about some of these already a little bit. Understanding what Jesus is doing in his teaching. First of all, we talked about a principle of inversion. Is there an inversion taking place in this text? Ask that question. Second, is there a prevailing cultural assumption that Jesus is addressing? Is Jesus challenging, in other words, conventional thinking about who is blessed and who is not, who is in, who is out? And then parables. Parables are an amazing thing because they work on multiple levels. For those people who are initiated and have faith, parables will teach you certain things. For those who don't care at all, who are resistant to the Lord, for those who have a hard heart, parables is what Jesus gives to those people. So they work on multiple levels. I'll talk about that some more. So this principle of inversion, think about things like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. What we thought was the top is now the bottom and what we thought was the bottom is now the top. Uh, Things like becoming poor to find riches. Things like losing in order to find. Things like the greatest is the the slave of everyone. Those are all inversions. Top to bottom, bottom to top. And the Bible is full of those things, and Jesus uses them a lot. And related to this, Jesus taught many times against the prevailing assumptions of the culture. Uh, The prevailing assumption of who is in, who is out, who is blessed, who is not, who is good, who is bad. Jesus flips a lot of that on its ear. And uh, unless you're uh, paying attention for it, you can run right by that. Uh, But the other primary way that Jesus teaches, and sometimes he's doing these things, some of them together, sometimes all three of these things can be together, is that he taught people in parables. And what Jesus' teaching does, I was thinking about how does Jesus' teaching work, and this is what I come up with. All of these methods really invite you to question your assumptions about what is really important. That's the power of Jesus' words and teaching. He does it in... He... I mean, I know He's the Son of God and all, but you just got to understand and just appreciate the brilliance of this man who is able to teach in such a way that it gives us something to chew on and think about. It helps us question our assumptions. So much dialogue in our world today is just like, let me tell you the way it is. And then the other side going, well, no, let me tell you the way it is. I don't, do people change their mind based on social media posts? I'd be curious what those percentages are. Because it's just like you choose something and then you go on from there and no one's changing anyone's mind about anything. Jesus' teachings don't work that way. Jesus' teachings, they give you stuff to chew on and think about, even for those who are hard-hearted and resistant. That's the way Jesus' teachings work. Because he comes to us in such a way 
that is not forced, but we're slowly able to grow into the truth of the kingdom of God. It's not a frontal attack. It's stuff that we're chewing on and churning inside. It's like little time bombs, a grenade that's fallen in there. Could go off at any moment. We don't know when it's going to go off. That's the way Jesus' teachings work. So let's look at the parable of the sower this morning. The parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 3 through 9. And he told them many things in parables, not a few things. Many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell among the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. See, when you first hear the parable of the sower, it's pretty clear in this story that there are four groups, four groups of people. And Jesus splits up these four groups. But only one of these groups is ready to accept that seed of the kingdom. Only one of these groups produces the fruit of the kingdom, of the four. So probably, I'm thinking about Jesus' original audience there, of people, the people, the masses of people who would hear his teaching in different ways, all of these parables that came. Some people would probably have guessed and understood that Jesus isn't referring to crops sown in the field. He's referring to conditions of the human heart. He's referring to the way people respond and the, the, the parable goes on to explain for the initiated, for the disciples, what exactly all of those things represent. But that's not knowledge that was given to anyone, but any, uh, uh, to everyone. But anyone who hears this thinks, what does that mean? What's he talking about? And if that is about the human heart, what does that mean about me? See, parables, they don't connect all of the dots for us. You're left to think about it. What do these different groups represent? And parables get you wondering about things. What group am I in? What group am I in? And Jesus isn't saying that if you're in one group and the word is snatched away, you're always going to be in that group. I'm sorry for you. Jesus isn't saying that what you do one time when the sowing is being done, that you're always going to do that every time the sowing is being done. But he's just saying that when the word is sown, there are different reactions to it based on the condition of the heart. 
And we are all of these different kinds of soil. But praise God for that day and that special moment when my heart is like good soil so that seed can take root and grow when the enemy hasn't put birds to snatch it away or distractions of life like weeds to choke it out when that word gets root and grows in my heart and my life in the power of the spirit it produces fruit praise God for those moments see Jesus is simply saying he's not saying that the way your heart is right now it's always going to be that way I'm sorry you're just stuck with that what he's saying is people respond in different ways when the seed is sown. When the word is sown, people respond in all kinds of ways. So we need a teaching that will address us where we are and lead us further on. And Jesus explains to us why he is teaching in parables further in Matthew chapter 13. Because his disciples ask him. He did enough teaching like this and there was enough misunderstanding about these parables that the disciples even themselves have to ask, why are you teaching this way? Why would you do this? Why do you speak to the people in parables? In other words, why don't you just tell people the way it is? And Jesus explains this. He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. And then he goes on to talk about, to those who have, more will be given. And to those who don't have, even what they think they have will be taken away. What does that mean? Ooh. Well, we're invited into contemplation of, of the mystery surrounding that. Whoever has, more will be given. Why will more be given to them? Well, it's because they already have something. You see, when you care enough and you have enough faith to think about uh, what this means and to go searching for it, to go looking for answers, when you care enough to search for knowledge, you have something. You desire to please Jesus. If you have that kind of heart, you already have something and more will be given to you. But what about those who don't have anything? What about those who are hard-hearted? What about those who are just not interested, who don't care? What about those who say thanks, but no thanks? What about those people who aren't asking, they're not knocking, they're not seeking, they're not searching for anything? Well, one of the gifts that Jesus gives to the hard-hearted and the uninterested was the gift of a parable. Because parables give you think, something to think about, something to chew on, a little mystery that may arouse enough curiosity that I begin to ask questions that I wasn't asking before. You see, one of the things that you will notice, and hopefully you've learned in your life as you've matured through said number of years, is that uh, when you come right on to people and you get in their face and you say, let me tell you the way it is, what kind of response does that elicit? 
When I get in Norm's face and I'm like this, Norm, let me tell you about the way it is. Well, Norm's a good guy. He'd probably put up with that. Rob would probably punch me or something. If I get in someone's face and you get in someone's face and let me say, hey, let me tell you the way it is. You Jews, you know what you've done? And the confrontation goes from there. And they reply with things like, that's your truth, or you do you and I'll do me. All those fun phrases of our culture. But suppose instead of getting in someone's face and telling them the way it is and wagging your finger at them, suppose instead you tell them a story about a prodigal son. Suppose instead you tell them a story about a man who has two sons. And dad goes and he tells the boys, hey, I, I need some help with the family business. And the first son says, no way, leave me alone. That's your problem. And he walks away and he marches off toward the sports bar to go drink shots with his friends. But while he's on the way, he begins to think, you know, maybe it's not that big a deal. I think I will go back and do what my dad wants. And then there's a second son who's there with his dad. And when his dad asks, he says, sure, dad, I'll do that. I'd be happy to do that. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of that. And instead of going and doing that work, he goes down to the sports bar and drinks shots with his friends. Which son did what dad asked? Which son did what dad asked? How do you argue with that? How do you argue against that? You don't argue with that. Hey, it ain't ain't like that. It ain't so. No, it gets you thinking about that. Who does what the dad asked in this parable? And then you get to thinking, well, I wonder what I'm like when my dad asked me stuff. And then you think, I know times I'm like that son. And then I think, I know I'm time, like times I'm like that son. And I don't know when the realization is going to hit. Cause it's like a time bomb in the, in the heart. And I wake up to those moments I'm like a son right now who has told my dad I was going to do this and I haven't done it. And that leads me to repentance. And that's a gift. Jesus teaches like this to give you something to chew on because it says this. The way he does, the reason, the answer that he gives to his disciples in Matthew 13. For this people's heart has become calloused, they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Not only is that a good description of this culture that we're in, that's a good description of every person in this room, at least some of the time, in one way or another. Parables 
are ticking time bombs for the hard-hearted. Because when you read these parables, when you think about the teachings of Jesus, whether you understand the full implications of them or not, they get you questioning your assumptions. Even if you're in rebellion, even if you have a hard heart right now, even if when you're resistant. Because you read those parables and you think, I wonder what kind of son I am. I wonder what kind of soil describes the condition of my heart right now. Maybe it's not as good as I was hoping. I wonder where is there treasure right under my nose that I may have missed. I wonder where am I squandering my inheritance for something that really is of no value and doesn't matter. Am I a sheep or am I a goat? What do my actions show? Is my lamp filled with oil and I, am I prepared for the arrival of the groom? What does that oil represent? Who is the groom? What's that mean about being prepared and being ready? See, it's like we're just going on. We hear this stuff and every once in a while those little ticking time bombs, they go off. And we question our assumptions again. And we think about things that maybe we haven't thought about for a long time. Now, of course, to those who have, more will be given. And we have a different level of commitment and understanding with parables. Parables work on multiple levels. But Jesus taught the way he did because he knew that there are a lot of people who just simply don't want to understand. They don't want to understand. Their hearts are hard. Their hearts are hard. Their eyes don't see. Their ears don't want to hear. Their hearts are hard. And that's because repentance has to do with change. If I understand what Jesus is offering, if I understand that I'm off course, there are some bad habits that are going to have to be broken. There is certain repentance that is going to have to take place. And I'd rather not mess with it. And I'd rather not deal with that. And if I do that, what are those people going to be whispering? What are they going to think if I'm the one up here talking to Calvin about this, that, or asking for the prayers of the church. What are they going to think? See, none of us wants to change. You can say you want to change, but you don't want to change. What you want is relief. You want all of your stuff to just start, suddenly start working and be okay. <laughs> but we're scared to death to change in truth because we're afraid of what it might mean. We are afraid of what we're going to have to give up. We're afraid of what it's going to cost us. So we don't want to change. My friend Dallas Willard had a quote this week that I thought was really helpful for me. If you look at human beings apart from Christ, they are dominated by two motives, fear and pride. 
fear and pride. In some cases, fear outruns pride, and in other cases, pride runs out fear. Fear and pride make you not want to change. Fear because if you change things, it'll probably be worse. Pride because who wants to admit that they were wrong? Who wants to admit that they need something? Who wants to let other people see you make a course correction? And this is why Jesus' teaching and his words are so important to us. Jesus knows how hard our hearts are. He's very realistic about that. He knows that we don't like to change. He knows about our fear and our pride. He knows. And so he teaches in such a way that he can leave something past our defenses. On the other side of our defenses, past all of our locked doors, past our smiley church face that pretends everything is okay. I'm fine. You're fine. You do you. I'll do me. Jesus' teachings move past all of those defenses. And they just sit there. And when I'm not looking, they go off. That's the way the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God in our hearts. They slip up on you. And Maybe I have a hard heart and I've been in rebellion about this, that, or the other for a very long time. But at the perfect moment, some circumstance changes, some difficulty arises, some pain that wasn't there before. Maybe I just wake up and realize how dysfunctional this behavior is. Maybe I just wake up and realize I, I, with regard to my sexuality, I'm trading treasure for pig slop. I mean, these realizations, they're there, and they go off at certain times. And we ask new questions. And our hearts that are hard, they soften. Our faith grows. And it all moves on from there. And that's one of the ways that we grow into the kingdom of God is your heart just gets softer and softer and softer. I cry a lot more at this point in my life than I did as a younger man. I ask questions at this point in my life that I wasn't asking as a 24-year-old. It all moves on from there. The power of the kingdom of heaven is just like this little mustard seed. You don't even notice that it's hidden there. It's just, unless you're looking for it, you'll never know it's there. And then it grows into something, and that something becomes bigger and bigger. And so the church of Jesus Christ is filled full of people who had lived previously 
as hard-hearted and an enemy to the cross of Jesus. And now, it's filled with people who take up a cross on his behalf. It's the power of this kingdom at work in our lives. And Jesus' teaching moves past our defenses. I think of that verse in Revelation where it says, I stand at the door and knock. That word maybe, hello, I'm out here. Will you let me in? We ignore that for a long time sometimes. But eventually, we begin to open that door and let him in. Teachings that we didn't even notice were in there. They begin to grow and blossom, and the fruit of the kingdom is produced. All right, Jim, you can come up here. That's our lesson for this morning. And our invitation, uh, if you want to put the Lord on a baptism, if you would like the prayers of this church, uh, whatever your need is, I'm going to be up here, and you can come talk to me about that. Uh, when we stand and sing in just a second. But the invitation is also to think about the way that Jesus' teachings work. The little voice that we hear past all of our locked doors, all of the places we have not invited God, we don't want God there, we don't want Jesus there, is will you respond to those little whispers at some point? Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not for a year, or who knows how long. But at some point, when that little ticking time bomb of the Word of God goes off in your heart, be ready to do something about it. And realize that repentance is not a burden, and it's about a lot more than guilt or shame. It's about getting to be together with the Lord your God and having a heart that will not let anything else get in the way. The dream of Jesus is for every moment that we respond to his call and open wide the doors of our heart to accept him in. That's what he dreams about for each of us. So let's stand and sing together.